in Mark's gospel, Jesus comes bursting onto the scene. It makes me think of if you're at a track meet and the starting pistol goes off, snap. Or maybe you've been at uh, a theater production and the opening scenes when the curtains open up, or maybe even before the curtains are fully open, characters come storming onto the stage and begin the first number or the first scene. So in Mark, unlike Matthew where we get the birth narrative of Jesus, we get the, the wise men appearing, or in Luke, where we get the announcement of John the Baptist's birth and the angels announcing to the shepherds, or even in John's gospel, where we get the prologue of, of a pre-existent son, the word becoming flesh. In Mark's gospel, immediately, a word that he will use throughout the book many times, Jesus becomes, comes bursting onto the scene to go and pursue the mission for which he has come. And the question that the Gospel of Mark opens with in our passage today is seeking to, to answer is simply the question, who is this Jesus that comes bursting onto the scenes? Interestingly, as we'll go through the rest of the book, we're going to watch other characters within the story, within the narrative, try to answer that question for themselves and to be puzzled at Jesus and perplexed or maybe rejecting Jesus. They're going to be grappling with that question, who is this Jesus? But from the very beginning, before Jesus goes to Galilee and Nazareth, he comes out to the wilderness for this opening scene where we get a behind-the-scenes look, so to say. We get clued in to who this Jesus is so that we are not dealing with that question even as we watch the characters deal with it. Mark wants us to understand from the very outset. And I want to show you, uh, you'll see on the slide there, a, a little bit of a representation of the structure. I don't have all the passage up there because it's quite a bit. But you'll see that the structure kind of takes the form of something like a sandwich, what sometimes gets called an inclusio or, 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 or a chiasm, where we have two, we have an opening section and a closing section that have a lot of themes in common. You'll notice the repetition of wilderness, which I have highlighted in green there. You also notice that in each of the three sections, there is mention of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we have verses 1 through 8 being that first section, to be clear, and then 9 through 11, the middle section, and then 12 and 13, the final section. And so the Holy Spirit is mentioned in each of those three. And then the middle section has this high point of the Father declaring Jesus to be the Son of God, which is also then how the whole section opens with that little bit of a title statement, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And so whenever we see these sort of structures, or there's sort of, the, sort of these outside sections pointing to a middle section, we know that the middle section is really the highlight, the focal point, the, 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 the pinnacle by which to understand the whole of it. And so we could break these section down, sections down into three titles. First, we have the anticipation of the Son. That's verses 1 through 8. And then verses 9 through 11, the middle section, is the identification of the Son. And then lastly, 12 and 13, is the obedience of the Son. Anticipation of the Son, identification of the Son, and obedience of the Son. And so let's begin with the identification of the Son, the very center 
This is the focal point. This is the high point of our opening passage. It's answering the question, who is Jesus? And in verse 11, as Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, really the baptism, not itself the focus, but the occasion for this declaration, the Father, the voice from heaven, declares of Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And this language uh, echoes language that we know from the Old Testament. And Dan already mentioned one of these last week. The first is Psalm 2. Psalm 2, this psalm uh, of which we hear the voice of God uh, decreeing things of his, of his king. Initially, that would have been David and his descendants. But ultimately, we see here Jesus being the ultimate king from God. And, and he says of Israel's kings in Psalm 2, verse 7, You, king, are my son. Today I have begotten you, referring to their appointment as king. We see here reflect, the language reflected of the promise that God made with David. We're in the Davidic covenant in uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. God says that to David's offspring, his descendants who will be kings, that he will be to those kings as a father, and they will be to him a son. And so this sonship idea, uh, not only reflective of Jesus as the divine son, but also within within the Old Testament context, reflects that he is the sonly king. The, the kings spoken of as sons in as much as they were to reflect God's rule over the people. So Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king from David's line. We are clued into it as baptism. Jesus is also the messianic servant figure from Isaiah, who is anointed with God's spirit and in whom God delights. So Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant, this servant figure originally referring to Israel as a nation, but now embodied in one person, Jesus, who represents them. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So this messianic figure, this servant who represents the nation on whom God is anointed with his spirit, his chosen one, this is exactly how the passage began, right? In verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, Messiah, anointed one, specifically the Son of God, the anointed one to be anointed as king, and here anointed with God's spirit. And so there we have the center of the passage, the identification of Jesus as the divine kingly son. But now, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here, looking at verses 1 through uh, 8, which talk about the anticipation of that son. Now, how are verses 1 and 8 functioning? The thing is, verses 1 and 8 are concerned with this anticipation of Jesus who then shows up in verse 9 and following. And when we look at them, we look at their anticipation. The anticipation is both in terms of prophetic prophecy as well as John the Baptist's preparation. So the prophets are longing and looking forward, and then John the Baptist's ministry is looking forward. As we look at what they're anticipating and and what the Son would come to do, we get to learn something about Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. And I want to show you seven themes or categories in the passage. We'll move through them very quickly. Seven themes about this anticipation, about what was being anticipated, either in the prophets or in John's ministry, 
that help us then answer that question, who is Jesus? What is this son, this kingly son, this Messiah, coming to bring into effect? The first is that he is coming to bring a new exodus. And so we saw in verse 3, as Mark uh, quotes from the prophet, he says Isaiah here, and this is from Isaiah 40 in verse 3, where it says, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Specifically, God there, Yahweh, make his paths straight. In Isaiah, this, this passage is anticipating the coming of Yahweh, who will bring an end to Judah's exile. Remember, Judah was, was brought out of their own land on account of their sin, and God sent them back into an Egypt-like situation. Once again, they are removed from the land. They, are, they, they no longer uh, have the promises that God gave them uh, of experiencing God's presence in the temple, of having a king over them, of dwelling in the land. But now they are actually out in a foreign territory, subjected to slavery once again. And so the prophets over and over, and Isaiah is just one iteration of this, if they understood that God initially worked his deliverance in the form of an exodus where he brought the people out of Egypt, so the coming salvation was cast in the form of a new exodus. The way God has worked in the past helps us to understand how God will work in the future. And so Isaiah is anticipating this time when out of the wilderness, God works again to bring about salvation in terms of a new exodus. God's going to redeem his people out of slavery once again and bring them back into the land. Secondly, there's this category of wilderness that shows up a lot in this passage, which really fits with what Isaiah was talking about. Because in the Old Testament, the wilderness, this isn't just some like barren landscape that just happens to be where Jesus is. I mean, it is where Jesus is and where the baptism is taking place, where John the Baptist is. But the wilderness was associated with the time of salvation. Specifically, when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt... And then he brought them into the wilderness to make them his people. The book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, you know, God is caring for his people in the wilderness before ultimately bringing them into the kingdom, into the promised land. The wilderness preceded God giving them that initial form of the kingdom that they experienced in the land. In other, in other words, the wilderness was something, the prophets saw it as something like the honeymoon period where God is wooing his bride. He's wooing Israel. He's caring for Israel. It's the formative period of that initial great act of salvation. And so as, as Egypt goes back into slavery, back into Egypt, so to say, the wilderness is, is language. It's, it's a place that conjures up reminders of hope. It's a place for a new beginning. It's a place for a new exodus. And so Hosea... Chapter 2, for instance, in verses 14 and 15, says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, speaking of Israel here, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I'll speak tender, tenderly to her, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt. This time when, when God is going to, like Hosea and Gomer, if you know Hosea, God is going to, he's going to allure his wife as at the time of their, their early youth, their honeymoon stage. The wilderness here, prevalent in this text then, is bringing up new exodus ideas. We're, we're anticipating 
John the Baptist goes out to the wilderness because it was symbolic of God doing something new, of the time that would precede Yahweh's coming to bring salvation. Thirdly, we see that what was anticipated is a time of purging. Again, this is part of what Dan talked about last week. But in verse 2, one of the passages cited is also Malachi 3. And Malachi 3 speaks of a messenger. Here, it's identified as John the Baptist. He's the one fulfilling this role. But this messenger is going to prepare the way for Yahweh to come to his temple to judge and to purge it, thereby restoring a remnant. Except here, it's adapted. The quotation is adapted such that it's Jesus who is coming as Yahweh. But what he's coming to do is to purge his people, to judge the temple and bring about a remnant. Fourthly, we see that this time of salvation, this new exodus, is, as we just saw, preceded by a messenger, specifically a Elijah figure. That same book, Malachi, which talks about the messenger going before Yahweh's coming to the temple, it closes, the very end of our Old Testament as we order our Old Testament, it closes this way in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the closing note, at least of our English Bibles, is the, wait, the awaiting of a prophet Elijah. And so in the Passover meal, even today, people, the Jewish people will leave a seat for Elijah. As they wait for the Messiah, the, the Elijah, the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, was seen to precede that messianic age. And so Mark here says that John the Baptist is this end-time Elijah figure, gathering out in the wilderness, calling people to repent and prepare for the coming of Yahweh who will judge. There's a need to repent as Yahweh comes to judge and to save and purge. He's preparing for the coming of Yahweh himself, who then is Jesus. And John's description in verse 6, you, we wonder why is he described as, you know, having camel, clothed in camel's hair and wearing a leather belt around his waist. Um, besides actually being true, of course, this is meant to conjure up thoughts of Elijah, since this is the exact same way that Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8. Fifthly, we see that the time awaited by the coming of Jesus is a time in which the end-time spirit would be poured out. The pouring out of the spirit in the prophets was, was something that belonged to the latter days, to the end time, when God's final redemption would occur. And, and the prophets talk then about the, the spirit being poured out on God's people, resulting in their restoration and their renewal. And so we see this in verse 8 where John says, I've baptized you with water, but he, the one coming after me, the one who's greater than me, the one whose sandals, I, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie, something that would have been un, seen as unworthy of a Hebrew slave. He can't even do what a slave does, in other words. This one, though, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the prophets, there's many places, Joel 2, for instance, this is something that ultimately happens at Pentecost, but another passage, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 27 says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, water being symbolic of the Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is something that it was said Yahweh was going to do. And now it is Jesus who is identified as the one who will pour out the Spirit, bringing renewal, a new exodus, a purging, a renewal of God's people by the Spirit. Sixthly, we see that he's going to bring a new creation. This one is subtle, but you'll notice if you read verse 1, the beginning, the beginning. This word is the same word that was used in the Greek translation of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or as John's gospel says as well, in the beginning was the word. And so here in Mark, he opens up with this language of Genesis. A new beginning is happening in Jesus' arrival. Or likewise, in verse 10, when the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism, it's des- the Spirit is described as being like a dove. And in Genesis, the language, you remember, not only to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And this word for hovering is actually a word used for birds, hovering. The idea that this, it's, it was, even within the Old Testament, understood uh, by the Jewish tradition, that the, that the spirit was depicted in these bird-like categories. Or in Genesis 8, in the flood account with Noah and the flood, which in many ways is depicted as a new creation, God wiping out the, or the former creation to start over. Again, a watery chaos, just like at the first. Again, the wind is blowing over the water, the same word for spirit in Hebrew, just as at the first. And then as the waters subside, Noah sends out a dove. And so Jesus' coming here, in subtle terms, I think, is likely being cast as something of a new creation. That as chaos ensues, as chaos first uh, described the, the, the first creation before God put order to it, and as we fall in Adam and chaos once again ensues among humanity, so Christ has come to bring about order once again, to bring about a, a, a restored creation, to bring about a new humanity. And seventh, all of this can be categorized as good news. The good news of God's kingdom. Verse 1 says that this is the beginning of the gospel. And that word gospel, as Dan talked about last week, is really just a word that means a good report, a good announcement, a good message, bringing glad tidings. This is a word that was used prominently in, guess what, Isaiah. Even Isaiah 40, which has already been cited as we looked at, the new exodus. That this is a word used to describe the new exodus, and not only a new exodus, but the rule of God that then would result. That God would reestablish his rule over his people and over his creation. The good news was specifically the good announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom. And that's exactly then what Jesus says, the first things off of his lips in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, in his ministry, says the time is fulfilled. That time has now come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so by looking at the identification of the Son and then the anticipation of the Son, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus this way? That the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of that time of salvation. That Jesus is the arrival of the Son of God who brings that time of salvation we've been waiting for. My dad 
is a Cubs fan, uh, Chicago Cubs. He grew up partly, uh, part of his, his early years in Chicago, and then he moved up north where I'm from, um, as, his, as my grandpa, his dad, moved their business from Chicago up there. But because of that, that little time in Chicago, he is a Cubs fan. He's a pretty die-hard Cubs fan. And as you know, Cubs fans do die hard. Uh, Cubs, historically, are not very good. However, when I think it was right after seminary, I can't remember what year they won. You may know they won the World Series recently. And it was one of those things where it's like, it was kind of like, is dad, dad going to be alive by the time the Cubs finally win? Like, will they? They seem like they're cursed, right? And there's like this myth about the goat and cursed or whatever, the whole thing about the goat showing up for Wrigley Field. You guys know that? Anyway, so my dad's this huge Cubs fan. And I personally don't really care about baseball. Um, I have nothing against it. It's just not something that I'm into. And so I'm kind of indifferent. If I go to a Brewers game, I'll cheer for the Brewers. Or if the Cubs are there, I'll cheer for the Cubs too. And it doesn't make any sense, right? So my only connection is really that my dad's a Cubs fan. But I tell you what, even though I didn't really care much about it, and I don't, when they were in the playoffs and they were heading to the World Series, I watched like every game of that World Series because I cared because I knew my dad cared. He had been waiting for this, and it's like it could actually happen. And I remember when they won, I was like so happy, not for myself, but for my dad. It was something that he had been waiting for. We all know that experience of longing for something. Okay, my kids, uh, one, of, one of my kids the other day was saying, Dad, my birthday has taken a really long time. It's like, well, it actually, it's always the same. Like, it's just a year. It doesn't, it's not like it's act being slow or fast, right? Or maybe you're one of those folks in our church, one of the 10% of people in our church, it seems, who has either gotten married recently or is getting married, and, and you're waiting for that day, uh, the wedding day. Or as a kid, you're waiting for... You're waiting for uh, a Christmas day to arrive. Or if you're Dan, you're waiting for a vacation. You can finally go to Florida. Whenever Dan is going to Florida, I always have to hear about it for like a month or two in advance. He's like longing for the warm weather. We know that feeling of waiting. In some ways, it can kind of get us through, too. And this is, this is the most amazing thing that we've been waiting for, right? Okay, let's, let's remember our need for Jesus to bring salvation. That we are part of that disordered chaos apart from Christ. We are in Adam sinful and subject to death, rebellious against the God who made us, no longer living out what it actually means to be made in the image of God, reflecting him and serving him and worshiping him. We are just like when we look at Israel, we see really, it's not, it's not like, oh, look at Israel, they're crazy. We see in the Old Testament that our own sinful nature is reflected in their history. That all of us are born exiled from God, separated from him, not in a proper relationship with him, subjected to the, 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 the sinful slavery that we've imposed upon ourselves as account of our, on account of our sin. Our relationship with each other are off because of sin. Not only are we estranged from God, but we are then estranged from each other. We, we hurt each other. We abuse each other. We mistreat each other. You look around the world and it's easy to see. It feels like the world is falling apart. But most importantly, our greatest need is that not only have we offended each other and made a mess of our own lives, considered on themselves, but we have also offended God. We have committed crimes against his sovereignty. And because of that, we have accrued punishment. We deserve to be punished before God. And if we understand all the weight and we sit under the weight of what our need is apart from Christ, 
And then Jesus comes bursting on the, on the scene. It's like, it's like a weight off our shoulders. It's finally, he is here. Finally, the salvation that we've been waiting for has come. Finally, the seed who would, who would crush the serpent, crush his head, he has finally arrived. And so how do we respond to this message? The, the, the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of that time of salvation. We see from within the passage itself, its own emphasis, as John says, understanding this reality, what does he do? He calls people to repent. He proclaims a baptism of repentance associated with the forgiveness of sins. To, to, to get yourself right before God, so to say, as he comes. If this is true that God's kingdom is coming and it means judgment for the wicked, it means a purging, but then also a rescue and salvation for those who are truly penitent and looking for him for salvation, then our response is to repent. Jesus says the same things. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. If this is actually true, what's our response? It is to repent and to believe the gospel, to believe in this good news of God's arrival and salvation for those who seek it in Christ. This word repentance is a word that means a turning. It's an about face. It's recognizing our need for salvation from sin. It's forsaking that sin and then turning to Christ for salvation from it. And faith, or believe, as Jesus says, is trusting and leaning upon and looking to Christ as your only hope for rescue from sin and all of its consequences. And what's interesting here is that no one's excluded from this call, this need to repent. No one's sort of born into the right conditions as if somehow they're just like by nature good with God. We're all born sinful, right? Paul says we're by nature children of wrath. John, interestingly here, is calling Jews to repent. They may have thought, you know, we're already the people of God. We're already good. We're God's chosen ones. But he's saying even within that religious community, you actually need to come out and repent. And so no one is, is off limits on this need for repentance. Even as believers, even as those who have repented in the past, we've recognized our need for salvation, we've put our faith in Christ, we have been made right with God, and that's a past event. I like what Luther says in his 95 Theses. You know Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, sparking the Protestant Reformation, his first theses, thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That repentance is a posture of our entire life. Just like we don't just believe back then and then faith drops off, we keep believing, right? We keep trusting in Jesus. So repentance is not merely, it is, something we do back then when we recognize our need for Christ, but our whole life should be one of repentance. And so I think a question for us as we respond to a passage like this is, if the end time kingdom of God has arrived in Christ, if these things are true, does my life reflect it? Does my life reflect, reflect the, the preparedness for the arrival of Christ and, and the results that that has brought a, a, a new state, a, a, the, the spirit being poured out, a purging that has result, a remnant that I'm a part of, a new thing that God has done bringing salvation to his people. Or as, as Paul says in Romans 6, how can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Like you've died to sin. 
Don't you know what your baptism itself depicts, that you have died to your sin and now you've raised in a new way of life? And so too, we might say, don't you know what Jesus' arrival means for you, believer? That a purging has happened, a new exodus has, has, has come about that you've been, brought up, been made a part of. The Spirit's been poured out on you. Don't you know what Jesus' arrival means for you? How can you continue to live in sin? You see, sometimes we can have an over-realized, I'll, I'll, I'll define this term, an over-realized eschatology. That just means like an, an, we have an exaggerated sense of how much we're already there. Okay, we think like we're longing to get to the future, full realization of the kingdom, and sometimes we have an overestimated sense of how much we're there. We, we, we fail to recognize that we still have sin, we still suffer. But sometimes we can have an under-realized eschatology. We can underestimate what God has done. We can excuse our sin. We can say, well, I can't change, I'm still a sinner. We fail to recognize that God has actually done something new. And we are, in fact, liberated from sin. I think another response is that it allows us to have deep comfort I want you to think about the, some of the audience in Mark's day that he's writing to. Now, some of them, they needed to be challenged. Maybe they were living complacent, and they needed to be challenged, but some of them probably needed to be comforted. There was Christians in Mark's day who were likely facing hardships and difficulties for following Jesus, and a passage like this can reassure them that living for Jesus is worth it. He truly is the one who has brought about salvation. He is the Savior. He is the one who is implementing, has implemented, and will continue to implement and ultimately implement God's kingdom. And so living for Jesus is worth it. Every sacrifice, every difficulty, every strain, every, everything that we give up. What does Jesus say later in the gospel? The person who tries to hold on to this life, they're going to lose it. It's worth it living for the king of kings. The person who gives up their life for the gospel, though, will save it. And so when you face difficulty, whether that's in a a ministry that you're pursuing for the sake of the kingdom or a lifestyle choice that you've made for the sake of pursuing the values of the kingdom, it's not easy. Or it's living out a testimony even in the workplace. Or maybe family members, maybe a lot of your extended family or even your immediate family, they're not believers. We face difficulties in this life. If you live the Christian life, you're going to face difficulties. But it's all worth it, Mark says. And then finally, I think it gives us a response of hope. In our suffering, in our struggle, even as we wait for the ultimate deliverance, we wait for the ultimate kingdom to come in full, we know that that kingdom has already dawned in Christ. It's already emerged and inaugurated. His rule has already begun. It's only a matter of time. And with the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, that gives us hope to persevere to the end. And so Jesus is the arrival of the Son of God who brings about that time of salvation, Mark says. But how exactly will he do that? How exactly will Jesus bring about that salvation? And that's where our third section the obedience of the Son comes help, becomes helpful. You notice, as we said, the Spirit is mentioned in each of these sections. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is then anointed with the Holy Spirit. And then there's no, like, this is an amazing scene, right, of Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit. There's no sort of, like, party thrown and, like, stop and let's all, like, think about how awesome that was. No, immediately after 
He comes out of the waters, anointed with the Spirit, and declared to be God's Son. He goes right into the wilderness. The same Spirit that anoints him at his baptism immediately thrusts him. The language is almost violent. It thrusts him into the mission for which the Spirit just anointed him. And what is that, that, that mission? Well, Mark highlights here that it is a confrontation with Satan. It is of cosmic significance. We're going to see throughout the rest of the gospel that Jesus is going to be interacting with people sort of on a, this earthly plane. But we know at the beginning, behind the scenes, a bigger battle is at stake. The arrival of Jesus means a confrontation with the forces of evil. And we'll see that even as Jesus uh, delivers people from demons and exercises unclean spirits. But again, how does Jesus defeat Satan? How does Jesus confront Satan? He does it by simply being faithful amidst temptation. And as this final section, 12 and 13, uh, are, are portrayed, you'll notice that it recalls Israel's own story in the wilderness, does it not? We have the mention of wilderness. Remember Israel brought out of Exodus into the wilderness, as we said? Jesus is tempted for 40 days, which seems reflective of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And just as Jesus has been identified as God's son right before this, in the wilderness specifically, God calls Israel his son, his corporate son, the one that he's redeemed out of Egypt. And so Jesus here is seen, I think, as representing Israel. He is obeying where Israel failed to obey. Whereas Israel, God's son, succumbed to temptation in the wilderness, the true son proves faithful, and he is obedient on their behalf. And not only is he obedient here at the outset on behalf of his people, but as Paul says, he will be obedient even unto death, Philippians 2. He not only represents us with standing temptation here, but he also represents us in his death. As Mark 10, 45 will say, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, in the place of many, pain for their deliverance from sin, from their, their deliverance from slavery is the ransom idea there. And there are, there are two places in the entire book of Mark, I think Dan may have mentioned this in the introductory sermon, so you may remember this, but there are two places in the entire book of Mark where this language of torn open occurs. Okay, here we see it at his baptism, where in verse 10, as Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn open. You saw the heavens being torn open. And then at his death in Mark 15, 37 to 38, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn open in two from top to bottom. And so the, the, the book has a, a beginning and an end with this idea of things being torn open. And interestingly, in both, case, both cases, someone is declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. In this case, it's the Father saying, you are my beloved Son. And at Jesus' death, when the, when the curtain is torn, the very next verse, it's a centurion of all people who, when he stood facing Jesus, it says, he saw that he breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so the book 
opens and closes with a tearing open and a declaration of Jesus as God's son. And together, these two accounts then create bookends. And they both have to do with the presence of God. In this first case, the arrival of Jesus is seen. When Jesus arrives on the scene, it's seen as the intrusion of heaven itself. Heaven has opened in the person of Christ. Christ's arrival is associated with the rending open of heaven itself. And this language of rending open heaven comes from Isaiah 64, in which as in Isaiah, again, uh, Isaiah is, the people of God are, are, are depicted as longing for God to come, for Yahweh to come and bring the new exodus, to bring deliverance. This, this interesting line is said, Oh, Yahweh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. The heavens have been rent open. This is my son, God says. And so at Jesus' crucifixion, likewise, when he dies, we see the rendering of the temple, the temple, the place of God's presence, now breaking open and available to all those who trust in Christ. That's our hope as believers. When we repent and believe, that's specifically the object. That's what we're talking about. We are believing in Jesus' death to give us access to God. And as we move to our time in the Lord's Supper then this morning, we're also reminded of this theme, right? In, in, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says this. He describes it, the second element, the, the, the wine, the cup. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So in other words, not only does Jesus' death bring about a new exodus and a new creation, it also brings about a new covenant, not like the first covenant where the law was simply written on tablets of stone, but now it will be written on the tablets of our hearts through the Spirit. A new covenant in which there, we don't have the institution of animal sacrifices to be repeated year after year, but now we have the permanent, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. So Jesus brings the time of salvation, the new covenant for us, and he says exactly how he does it. His blood that is his sacrificial death, poured out for many, poured out on behalf of many. And that is us. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup are pictured promises. They are, they are, they are pictures of Jesus' death, and they represent to us the promises of the gospel, that Jesus has come to save all who trust in Christ. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, behold Christ as God presents him to us in the supper, as you've heard Christ preach to you through my human words, and now you hear the gospel preach to you through the elements of the Lord's Supper, trust in Christ and commune with him, have faith with him and experience, uh, continue to experience that salvation that we have through Christ.